0: So I just want to welcome everyone here to Grand Rounds and uh, anyone who's watching remotely, uh, including our colleagues uh, in Rwanda who might be able to access um, this talk uh, remotely. Mary Chamberlain and a group of our uh, our colleagues are over there in Rwanda right now. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce Lori Buswell. Uh, Lori Buswell is the executive director of the of the Center for global cancer medicine at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and she has served patients at Dana-Farber for over 34 years as a registered nurse, a nurse practitioner, and has held several administrative positions. Lori's clinical work has included work in bone marrow transplant, ambulatory medical oncology, and radiation oncology, and she's also worked as a research nurse with a focus in hypoxia and radiation sensitizers. Her administrative work is focused on designing and implementing uh, information, information technology systems to enhance patient care delivery, quality, uh, and safety of care, as well as Im- improving provider workflow and enhancing revenue, something that we can all relate to. In addition, Lori has been involved in Dana uh, Farber's uh, strategy to develop a broad clinical network within the Boston area, which includes uh, four satellite centers and practices. But uh, her role as a uh, at the Center for Global Cancer Medicine has been to work with Partners in Health um, where she has uh, developed and supported oncology programs both in Haiti and Rwanda. And I was fortunate enough uh, over the past two trips uh, to Rwanda to work with Lori and I consider her a good friend and colleague. And I wanna welcome her warmly at our uh, Cancer Center Grand Rounds. So please give her a round of applause.
1: Thank you very much, Eric, and it's um, nice to see some friends like Tom Davis and Linda in the audience, Um, and so thank you so much for having me. Um, I have nothing to disclose. Um, So today I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, global oncology and things, a little bit about our program at Dana-Farber and lessons that we have learned in our journey that's almost seven years old now. Um, So I I think this news probably isn't news to any of you that um, the bulk of um, cancer incidents and deaths occur in low and middle income countries predicted to rise over um, 70 percent in the next two decades. Um, More than 70% of deaths from cancer occur in low- and middle-income countries. That's more deaths than HIV, TB, and malaria combined, yet low- and middle-income countries have less than 5% of global resources, yet they bear the majority of the burden. Um, There are many initiatives going on worldwide. The UN, as part of their Sustainable Development Goals, um, written in 2015, um, has a goal around um, health promotion and specifically decreasing mortality from non-communicable diseases, NCDs. And um, while I never thought about cancer as a non-communicable disease, that's the way that that it is classified um, in the World Health Organization. And there are many different initiatives, and this is only some of them, but there's um, 23 drug companies who have come together to um, unite around Access Accelerated, and these are drug companies that do all kinds of things from donating drugs to low- and middle-income countries to um, providing opportunities for their workers to volunteer time up to six months. So, for example, um, there's a, a, uh, i 'm forgetting the name of the of the drug company, but they actually um Have their, uh, employees can participate in a, in a total volunteer program for six months where they, we actually in Rwanda have had a couple of, um, of these people and they have helped to build clinical trials infrastructure or really helped, um, you know, look at data analysis. So it's different resources that companies have that they avail them to, um, countries who need them. The UICC, which is the union, uh, the International Union for Cancer Control, has a project going on helping um, cities that have a population of more than a million to develop um, cancer control plans. There are organizations like the American Cancer Society, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, NCCN, IBM, the American Society for Clinical Pathology, as well as drug companies who um, are are um, collaborating to bring cancer care to five African countries. And this includes things like access to um, affordable drugs, um, training for workers, as well as um, NCCN guidelines for low- and middle-income countries. And IBM is building um, an IT platform that providers can put in what the diagnosis is, and it will walk them. It's sort of like a a clinical pathway. It will walk them through what that particular patient should get um, for treatment based on (coughs) predetermined guidelines. The World Health Organization has the essential medication list that um, includes the drugs uh, that are recommended for low and middle income countries to um, to treat cancer. They also had an initiative several years ago, um, really outlining essential medical devices. And when I think of medical devices, I think of like portacaths and. Um, you know, IV pumps, but they really mean what are all the things that you need to have a cancer program, and they publish that. There are also um, the NCI has efforts in global oncology as well as academic medical centers like yourself, um, Dana-Farber, Penn, Fred Hutch, MD Anderson, UCSF, Stanford, MGH, Indiana University, Duke, UNC, um, who are all doing work in various countries. ASCO and ONS also have partnered with um, the health volunteer overseas and have opportunities for their members um, to be matched with a country and do some work in that regard. There are also um, efforts. ONS partnered with the American Cancer Society to do some training and those five African countries, and ASCO has um, some grant opportunities um, for for members and people in low and middle income countries. So there are definitely lots of initiatives out there. The reality on the ground is that cancer awareness is low. Patients present with late stage disease or aren't diagnosed by clinicians, aren't diagnosed early by clinicians. Um, There's lack of access to treatment facilities, medicines, radiation, and supportive care. Um, And you can see in in the picture below, that's a linear accelerator taped together with (laughs) surgical tape. Um, There are a few specialty-trained clinicians Poverty restricts people's ability to um, to have access and to receive treatment. And as you might imagine from the picture of the little girl, um, there's lots of stigmas that exist around cancer or um, walking around with a tumor growing out of your cheek. Um, <clears throat> more than two thirds of the world's cancer burden falls on the poor. And if you look at this diagram, which I think you saw a couple weeks ago when my colleague Scott Treidman was here, um, in the United States, for every um, 10 women who are diagnosed with cancer, two will die. In Africa, seven women out of 10 will die from their disease. So there's a lot of work to do. Um, So the program at at Dana-Farber, we are we are really aligned with Partners in Health, which is a non organization that was started probably about 35 years ago by Paul Farmer, who's an infectious disease doctor now at Harvard and the, Br- the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, Paul was actually not even in medical school um, when he made his first trip to Haiti and, and saw, the, saw the health or the lack of, of health Um, in patients who were poor and made it really his life's work to tackle the problem. And he and Jim Kim, who you all know because Jim was here um, for a couple of years before he joined the World Bank, and another woman, Ophelia Dahl, started Partners in Health um, back in the early 80s. Um, And Partners in Health is based in Boston. They work in about 11 or 12 different countries. And when the, when a couple of the countries where they worked and started to see more cancer, Paul reached out to Dana-Farber to say, you know, gee, we do TB and other infectious, HIV and other infectious disease and maternal child health, but we don't know anything about cancer care. Can you partner with us um, to build cancer care in these two countries? And so that's how Dana-Farber's uh, work started. And as you can see, um, Haiti and Rwanda are two of the poorest countries in the world, ranking at 17 and 20 of the top uh, 25 poorest countries. Um, So Haiti um, and Rwanda actually are pretty similar in in terms of the population. They have around 11 uh, million people. Size-wise, they're about the same. Um, In Haiti, Port-au-Prince is the capital. And the, the part in yellow is where the Partners in Health work. So that's called the Central Plateau, and that's the, the catchment area where they are in about 10 different hospitals um, in that area. Very densely populated. The official languages are French and Haitian Creole, and it's the most mountainous nation in the Caribbean. Rwanda has about 12 million people, again, about the same size um, of Maryland. Kigali is the capital city located um, in, you know, really right in the middle of the country. It's one of the most densely populated countries in Africa. Um, The official language is English. Um, Most people throughout Rwanda speak Kenya Rwanda, which is a very difficult language. And later on, I have a picture of an ambulance with the word car that takes you to the hospital is written on the side, so you'll see what I mean. And, um, and a lot of people speak French. Most of the people that we work with in Butaro actually speak English. And over the time that we've been working there, English has become much more common um, and people are much more proficient, and in fact, years ago, um, they used to have a, um, a guy come to the hospital and they called him John English, and he, was, he taught the, the hospital staff how to speak English um, you know, for many sessions. And hopefully you'll see this in some of my pictures, but Rwanda is known as the the country of a thousand hills because the entire country is um, filled with mountains and very big hills. And you get your workout when you you go there because you walk up and down a lot of hills. Um, So our center, the mission of our center is really to build capacity and systems to support cancer care delivery and to do research. and really with the ultimate goal of developing a system where the oncology care is sustainable. And when I first started doing this work about seven years ago, I thought, oh, maybe in 10 or 20 years we'll get there. And I now realize it will probably be more like a generation or two before (laughs) the care is is really what we would consider um, modern care. Um, the, I just wanted to say a couple words about our funding. So, firstly, I would just say that it's been incremental. Our center, our center's work started in 2011 when we began to put together a baseline training program for the Ministry of Health in Rwanda. Um, and actually, the one of the doctors that we work with in Haiti attended that training as well. Um, And it was all volunteer work. So anybody who wanted to work on it did it on top of their normal job. We had a very small um, operating budget, which was really a gift from Dana-Farber. We also had some small philanthropy. philanthropy. And um, along with Partners in Health, we were able um, to write a grant um, to um, Galaxo Smith-Kline, who supported the training that we did the first time. Um, In uh, 2017, I actually gave up my usual day job at Dana-Farber and was allowed to dedicate um, 100% of my attention to our global oncology work. Um, And at the same time, half of my old secretary came with me to the center. Um, I have a nurse who works one day a week for me, and she actually goes down to Haiti several times a year, so that's how her one day a week fits in. and we have a physician um, who is a radiation oncologist, Scott Trivman, who was here, I think, a month or two ago and gave grand rounds. Um, and he works for our center. And last July, I um, was able to hire our first Dana-Farber doctor. Um, so Dayo Fidelu was one of our fellows for the past three years. And um, Dio is Nigerian-born uh educated in the US, he went to Baylor University, Yale Medical School, did his residency at Penn, and after he did his residency, he worked for Partners in Health for two years in Rwanda on our oncology unit, applied to fellowship, came and did his fellowship at Dana-Farber, and now he works 50 percent for the Center for Global Cancer Medicine, and the other 50 percent of his time he works as a hospitalist on our inpatient oncology service. and, and then the other thing that we have started to do much more of is to write grants, um, to do research in Rwanda that, that helps, um, support our, our funding. Um, we also, two years ago, um, some of our young colleagues from Partners in Health wrote in our PMC, which is the Pan Mass Challenge, which is the big bike ride, bike ride that raises a lot of money. So, we now have a team, um, and we're looking to increase that team. And I know you guys have a bike ride, too, and that's a wonderful mechanism to raise money for efforts like this. So. While I'm on the topic of money, I just want to um, point out to people that it takes money to do anything, to make an impact on a problem that is this big. And if you look at the funding for HIV and AIDS, you'll see that back in 1987, which is at the beginning of, of this graph, there was very little money. And it wasn't until about 2000, 2002, that money started to really be be poured into the effort with the global fund and PEPVAR. <coughs> so if you look, I don't know how to do that, but where the graph goes up, that's around 2002. And then if you look at what happened in Rwanda around 2002, where there were a lot of deaths and very few patients were on medication. And with that influx of money, you begin to see the number of people that were started on um, antiretrovirals, and you look at the decline in the deaths. And this is an incredible success story globally. This is incredible. And this is really, I think, what has to happen to make the same impact on cancer. And even though I think that this is an incredible success story. Cancer is more complicated than HIV. I think everybody would agree, and that's not to minimize the success story and, and the life saved and the, and the people who made this a success story. But this is what we have to deal with in cancer. You know, we need... Diagnostics. You know, we need the, the ability to run labs. We need the ability to do pathology, high-quality pathology, because, as you all know, that is the, the first thing you need in order to figure out how to treat patients. You need imaging to stage appropriately. You need systemic therapy. You need surgery. You need radiation. You need mental health and social support. You need to think about survivorship issues and long-term follow-up. And you need to think about long-term follow-up so you know how you're doing in your program. And you need palliative care. And then across all of those different things that you need, you need human resources. You need training and continued education. You need medical records and data collection. You need supply chains that work. You need biomedical support. You need physical infrastructures. And you need research. And underlying all of that, you need funding you need governmental support and you need partnerships. So, in my mind, cancer is much more complicated than than oral drugs that community health workers could take around and make sure people were taking and you need one test and and that was the great success story and I think we can learn a lot from HIV and hopefully there are people whose pay grade is higher than me that can figure out how to get the money where it needs to to be in order to have the same success story with cancer. Um, so a little bit about our center and some of the guiding principles. Um, we truly believe that as, you know, academic U.S. medical centers, we can't go in and just tell everybody how to do this. We need to partner with the local leadership in the country and that includes the Ministry of Health. And unlike what I did when we were building satellites around around Boston, um, you know, where, well, actually it's similar to it, where we worked with local community hospitals. We really need to work within the health system and in the academic medical centers in these countries in order to build the health infrastructure and the capacity that needs to happen. And that includes things like developing treatment protocols. You know, even though NCCN has these sub-Saharan African protocols that include everything that you should do, really the team on the ground needs to have the investment and be part of developing those. And even in terms of diagnostics and drugs, they are the ones that have to decide, you know, what's our formulary going to look like? What can we afford? And it needs to be developed in a way that is part of a partnership. We also think about how the oncology effort can strengthen the whole health system and, you know, really think about it as multidisciplinary and comprehensive. And so, for examples, um, Butaro and, and, um, the hospital in, Haiti called Maribelet, they didn't have pathology labs. And, you know, pathology is more than just for cancer. So building a pathology lab and, and building capacity among techs and pathologists helped the whole hospital, not just oncology. You know, having advocating for a CT scan not only helps the oncology patients, but it helps the whole population. We also have done a lot of task shifting to build clinical capacity. So when we started in Rwanda, there was one partially trained oncologist in the country, one oncologist partially trained for a country of, at that time it was about 10 million people. Um, So what we decided to do with treatment protocols that we sat down and wrote with our Rwandan and Haitian colleagues, we decided to provide enough support with GPs and internists so that they could provide the day-to-day care with weekly phone calls with us, with visitors going over on occasion, um, so that we could start to take care of cancer patients. Because if we waited for, you know, 10 oncologists, we'd still be waiting, because there are not 10 oncologists in the country yet. We also, um, and this is where Partners in Health and where, um, so Partners in Health had been in Rwanda for, since 2006. So they had some infrastructure and they had some supply chain systems already worked out. So we were able to really layer the oncology needs on top of a system that they had already built out. And then one of the other really important things is, building data collection um, along the way and not waiting until four years into the program and saying, oh, gee, we should have collected that data so that we could look at X, Y, and Z. And really what we tried to do from the very beginning was to build systems where we collected data along the way. We still do a lot of retrospective chart abstraction for certain things, but we have also um, built an EMR system, and when I was there in 2013, we actually implemented chemo order entry, which is almost unheard of in a low-income country, but they had a great programmer there, and we said, these are the templates that we need, and so we have chemo order entry where doctors put in height, weight, it calculates the BSA, and it calculates all The drugs. Um, So we have some data in the EMR and we have paper charts. And we have done um, a pretty pretty good job of looking at different diseases and looking at what our outcomes are so we can figure out where do we need to do better. Um, And if you don't collect data, you can never answer the question, how are you doing? Um, And then the other thing is partnerships. And I can't say Enough about partnerships. PIH's philosophy is, and this, you know, their tagline is: "We go, we make house calls, we build health systems, and we stay." Um, and as I mentioned, um, we provide both on-site support through many of our volunteers, and and we usually have a nurse in-country. Um, all the time in the last seven years, it's, there's probably been about ten months that we haven't had a nursing, an oncology nursing country. Um, so, um, and we we also we also took the approach that we needed to build a care an oncology care delivery system first. Before we started to do research and there are many other centers who have done it differently um, where they get grants to do research and they go in the country and they and they do the research. Um, and we took a little bit different approach. So we have done a lot of retrospective um, research looking at outcomes and we're at the place where we're really beginning to look forward and to think okay how can we build an infrastructure to be able to do prospective clinical trials and i think that's where we are not that it's going to happen this year or next year but i'm hoping that in the next several years that we'll be doing some prospective research in in both rwanda and haiti um, and so this is just an example, and it's not even all of the partners that we have worked with, but um, you, no one organization, and I don't care if you're the World Health Organization or, you know, you're, um, you know, somebody who has billions and billions of dollars, no one organization can do this work alone. You have to have partnerships because it's too complicated, it takes too much money, and it, and, and it's just a... It's a longitudinal effort, um, so you need to have partners. And what our partners have um, provided with us is really... financial support, support for program continuity, um, new project development. So, so in Rwanda right now, there is a building that one of our donors um, has supported that will be um, called the Oncology Support Center, and it will house, it will have 75 beds in it. And our center is actually two hours north of the capital in a very remote area. So there aren't, hotels or places where patients can stay. So patients and family members sleep outside um, or they try to find a a place to sleep because it takes like a day to get there and a day to get home for most of our patients. And so this support center will be a place where oncology patients and their family member can spend the night before they get chemotherapy and the night that they get chemotherapy um, and and they'll have a, a warm, dry place to stay. Um, we've had a fair amount of financial support for training clinicians and staff, for strengthening systems, and then material donations. Every month I get a couple boxes of breast prosthesis and bras from our boutique at Dana Farber for all the stuff she hasn't sold and wants to get rid of. So um, there's lots of material donations, and that even Includes things like, not from Dana-Farber, but from a company called DACO that um, supplies us with reagents for the laboratory. Um, And then, obviously, scientific knowledge and donated time. Um, We've had a a lot of people that want to be part of our program and um, have donated a lot. Um, So... I'm going to talk a little bit about the workforce training, and at the request of of Mary, I'm going to go a little bit deeper into the nursing work that we have done. Um, But on the physician side, um, we probably have about, between both of our sites, we probably have about 15 different doctors from across the country, and we have a doctor from Canada who volunteer with us. And they make a commitment, and it's sort of what Mary and Eric and Tom have done, to go over for a week or two, year after year year after year, and that really is, is what we need. We need people to build a relationship, to, to be in the country, to work side by side, to understand the context, understand the resources that are available, and build those relationships with our local colleagues. So, we have visiting oncologists, um, we run baseline training programs. So, I was just there at the beginning of the year, and our oncology team, who aren't oncologists, but they were, um, they have 10 interns up in Butaro this year, and they were running um, a training course for the interns that are up there um, several afternoons over a couple peri- uh, over a couple weeks period. The other thing that I mentioned, and I realize now, at the time I didn't realize this, but I realize now how important this was is having treatment-based protocols, and these are papers that say breast cancer at the top and it tells you everything that you need to do and it's a teaching document it's just it's not just a like okay you know add a cup of sugar and a little bit of flour it, it tells you what are what did the patients present with what is the workup what is the staging what is the treatment what is the sequence of the treatment if it's some disease that needs multimodalities, um, and those treatment protocols have been like the Bible for our colleagues. And every time I'm over there, I'll be rounding and the doctor will say, well, should we do this? And I'm like, I don't know, let's look at the protocol. And I get the protocol book out and we look it up. So it not only has provided the guidance and the clinical pathway about how to take care of an individual patient, but it has allowed us to do those retrospective chart reviews that I talked about. So if we treated breast cancer patients 14 different ways, we would never be able to go back and look at our cohort and look at what the outcomes were and and then make the treatment better. Um, and, And I think the other really important thing is that the treatment protocols were developed in conjunction with our partners there. It's not like we just said, here, here are our protocols. We think you should use them. And it's interesting. I'm trying to have this conversation. I have a colleague who's working with a um, doctor in Bailey's and I know they want our protocols, and I don't think giving them our Butaro our protocols is the right thing. Part of owning the program, part of figuring it out, is sitting down and doing the hard work of writing the protocols and knowing what they are as the team on the ground. We also have um, started in Haiti, not yet in Rwanda, Project Echo, which I think most people here know about. But it's the use of um, an IT platform called Zoom and um, to have case-based learning with a short uh, PowerPoint presentation. So this was um, developed by the University of Mexico where a hepatitis C doctor had like an eight-month waiting list for new patients to come and see him because people out in rural areas, PCPs didn't know what to do with hepatitis C. So he started calling the PCPs and asking about their patients and saying, oh, well, try this or try that. And then he started using video conferencing with a whole lot of them. And so it's case-based learning where you go over patients and then there's a short didactic that teaches a couple of clinical points about whatever your topic is. So we've started to do this with our team in Haiti, and we'll be starting in the next month or two with our team um, in Butaro. We also have had, and, and thanks to our colleagues here, some observerships in the U.S. So I think John Batonzi came here, and I think Kate came here for a period of time. And we have also done that at Dana-Farber. Um, and that it, that's great to um, you know, just give people exposure to different things. Obviously, the setting is very different. Um, we do conference, prese- or we support our colleagues in conference presentations, so some of those outcomes Um, research projects that we have done, we do with our Rwandan colleague. And whenever we can, they're the first author on the paper, and they're the person that submits the abstract, and they're the person that goes to aortic or to UICC and presents the the poster or the abstract or the talk. Um, I do think we have a lot more capacity building that we can and should be doing in the research arena we also have um, a, a physician from the Brigham who has been very committed to our efforts, both in Haiti and Rwanda. And she has gone over and taught breast ultrasound and needle biopsy in both countries, uh, <coughs> allowing um, in Rwanda, we have a very robust breast clinic there where they um, do these biopsies. And then we've, we've also had a breast surgeon who has gone to do surgical mentorship. At least in Butaro, where we work, we only have two operating rooms, and one of them always has to be free for emergency C-section. So we have one operating room, so that means one or two (laughs) cases a day. So in Butaro, most of the complicated surgery of our patients that we see in Butaro actually are done in the capital city at one of the big teaching hospitals or the military hospital. And I do think that... um, that over the next couple of years some of our expertise whether it's from dartmouth or dana farber or memorial that we need to provide some accompaniment to these other hospitals and i know dartmouth has a relationship with shiashuka because it was part of the hrh program that you participated in and that's where a lot of the surgery happens um I talked about the uh, the um, treatment-based protocols already. Anything that doesn't fit into a t- treatment protocol gets discussed on our weekly call, and the team on the call makes a, dis- a decision about what we should do with that patient. And sometimes we're not able to make a decision because we need to do a little bit more research on something. Um, but we try not to have a lot of patients that are treated off protocol. Um, <clears throat> In terms of nursing, I already mentioned that we did this baseline training program. We've had experienced oncology nurse on the ground, um, both in Haiti and Rwanda. We also, in in Butara, we have also, at the request of the ministry, hosted nurses from other hospitals in the country to train them on chemotherapy administration and being an oncology nurse, um, which I think is great, and we were happy to do it. Yet they went back to their own hospitals, and there's no chemotherapy at their hospitals, so anything that they learned, they'll have to um, have some refresher training when when more chemotherapy is in the country. Um, the Butaro Hospital is the only public hospital in Rwanda that has chemotherapy. There's a private hospital in the capital, King Faisal, that if patients can afford to go there, they can get a prescription and they can go to a local pharmacy and get their chemotherapy, but the other hospitals really aren't set up to um, have access to chemotherapy drugs. Um, One of the other things that we have done in Rwanda is the University of Rwanda several years ago started a master's degree program. And one of the tracks in that program was oncology. So we helped them with the curriculum and then they come to Butaro um, as part of their clinical training. Um, we will also do nursing grand rounds through Project ECHO, We've also had um, observerships. Um, we've also um, accompanied a couple of our nursing colleagues um, to conferences uh, to present talks or posters. Um, and we also, in Rwanda, and we're not quite there in Haiti, but we have um, – advocated for them to identify two Rwandan nurses who could become oncology educators so that then they're the ones that train the new nurses who come to work in the hospital. And we had two great oncology educators for many years, and then about a year ago they both left at the same time, um, one for a job in the ministry and one because she lived about eight hours away and and had a baby and didn't think she could manage that with a baby. Um, So we have two new oncology educators there um, that were – developing that role with competencies around what it takes to be an educator. This is just a picture uh, really back from 2012 of the first class that we did um, in the National Baseline Training Program, nurses from all over the country. Um, One of the other things that we have done is worked with our colleagues to develop standard operating procedures And even things that aren't necessarily oncology-related, but things around IV care and maintenance, wound care. As you might imagine, we see a lot of wounds on our service, infection control practices, and then hypersensitivity reactions and having a stat box available if somebody does have a hypersensitivity reaction. We've also spent a lot of time on um, calculations. So even though we get the printout of the um, order for the chemotherapy um, treatment plan. Um, the nurses mix the chemotherapy, so that's a little different than I'm sure what happens here or what happens at Dana Farber. So we have set up systems where there are double checks of all the math that is done manually, um, <coughs> and you know even drug labels. Like we have drug drug labels that we develop so that you know all the right information is on the chart, and you can see this. Um, you know, on your right, sort of the lineup of the nurses that are in the mixing room and filling out labels and um, in their personal protective equipment. Um, We also... um, Advocated very strongly for a mixing hood. Um, so this mixing hood is in our infusion center, which is different than our inpatient ward. And um, when I was there last, um, after a couple years of advocating for a second hood, we now have a mixing room adjacent to um, the pediatric ward and in the same building as the adult ward. And um, and they have ordered another hood so that we will have hoods in both places. Um, And then, you know, and then techniques around chemo administration. um, Any nurse, oncology nurse who's here, you know how tricky it can be to give vesicants, which we spend a lot of time on. We don't yet have um, central lines in, in Rwanda, which really limits us and Eric and I have talked about this a lot, particularly for Burkitt's lymphoma, where there's continuous infusion vesicants, which we really can't do until we get central lines. So it really limits our ability to treat certain or treat with certain um, chemo uh, plans. And um, for the nurses, we do have a competency checklist that. In the practical training, nurses are checked off on, you know, on their skills and their techniques until they're deemed competent in in chemotherapy. Um, We also um, have have um, so I don't know if anybody knows about the organization called Go Go, Global Oncology. It's a, a nonprofit organization that two former Dana Farber fellows started. And one of their projects was to develop a patient education teaching booklet. And um, the teaching booklet is specifically geared to low and middle income countries and translated into various languages. And we had it translated into Creole and um, Kenya, Rwanda. And. Um, It also has a lot of illustrations in it. So for people who can't read, they can get the message through a lot of the pictures, the illustrations that are in the book. So we did a project in Rwanda where we um, collected demographics and we did a pretest for patients and their families, and then we used the book to teach them about cancer and about chemotherapy and side effects of chemotherapy, and then they did a post-test and then a satisfaction um, survey about the booklet. And it overwhelmingly increased people's knowledge, and people were very happy with the booklet. Fortunately for us, we're getting ready to open the first um, radiation facility in the country, um, and GO just updated their booklet to include radiation, Um, so we'll be implementing that as well. (coughs) Um, A few of the other things that uh, that nursing has done that – You know, it isn't traditionally what people think about um, as nursing is um, when I was there in 2013 for a three-month stay, my first morning I watched two doctors and two nurses spend two hours trying to figure out what patients were outside waiting to be seen. And then they went back to the office, and they had one of those four-file drawer, file cabinets, and they had papers and a couple folders in there, and they were going through all this paper trying to find if they had any information on the patients. And one of our surgeons was coming over the following week, so I called my secretary and made her a list of things to send over, and one of those things was a calendar, like a hairdressing book, like of all the days and the times. And... um, they were very good. They actually gave patients return visit dates, but they didn't write them down anywhere. So on any given day, they had no idea who was coming. So we just started to write down in the booklet what the patient's name was, what they were coming in for. And then every day in the afternoon before, we looked at who was coming in. And if somebody was coming in for a pathology, so this was back in the days where all of our pathology went to Boston to be read. So it went with a traveler, and it took six weeks. And so if we didn't have the pathology, we actually called the patient and told them not to come, which saved them two days of travel to come in here that we didn't have their pathology. But it also just helped us organize. So we also made charts for all the patients. We put them in an order. We separated them by disease. We had them in alphabetical order so we could find charts and so something as like simple as just a system like that changed the way that they practice and and then gave clinicians more time to spend with the patients than trying to like figure out who was here and whether or not we had any paperwork One of the other things that we've done is a lot of work with the treatment protocols and the chemotherapy templates. And, in fact, when I was just there a couple weeks ago, I built some chemo templates for the IT people to build and put in the system. Um, We've done some work with supply chain, also with chemotherapy waste management. Um, And we still have a lot more work to do in this arena, but um, really making sure that the housekeepers are trained and when they go into the mixing room how to like pick up the trash and take it to the incinerator. Um, Patient follow-up, making sure that we don't lose patients. trying to, you know, after a certain time, if patients don't show up, that we're calling them and asking them, you know, to come back. Um, We've done some quality improvement projects, and then I also mentioned that we've done professional mentorship in terms of meetings and abstracts. We also have um, hosted some of our Rwandan colleagues, and this is Bosco who's been with the program since we started. Um, Uh. (coughs) So I thought I would just add a couple of things from my recent trip. So I was telling Eric this morning, that when I got there in January, um, found that our adult ward only had 10 nurses on it, and only seven of them were trained in oncology. So we hadn't had a nurse there for about five months, one of our Dana-Farber nurses. so we worked with um, the director of nursing who had, they have a rotation system that nurses can rotate from unit to unit after a year or two. Um, so we were able to negotiate with him to bring back a couple people who had recently rotated off oncology. And the new nurses on that ward, the pediatric ward in the clinic, um, underwent orientation in February. So we were backfilled. So we had enough nurses. Um, so that's one of the things that we held the new uh, nurse orientation ses- session. We also, I worked with the three managers of outpatient pediatrics and adult to figure out what would ideal staffing look like for nursing and how many do we need on this day and this day. And then and we presented that staffing proposal to the director of nursing. We also submitted a grant to My Child Matters, which is a um, Sanofi grant. And our particular grant was to hire a uh, navigator to work on the pediatric program, um, specifically with Wilms tumor patients to try to improve our loss to follow-up and our time in between um, chemo and surgery and radiation and back to chemo. Built some chemo templates. Um, One of the other things we do there, so we don't have a CT scan in Butaro, so when patients come and they need to be staged, we do a chest x ray and a liver ultrasound to rule out metastatic disease. And um, the ultrasound, so the chest X-ray, you actually have a picture of the chest X-ray in the chart, but the ultrasound is done by the clinician, and they write in a note that it's positive or negative. And so as I was rounding and flipping through the charts and finding several patients who never had an ultrasound, decided that if we had one page that had the ultrasound report, then everybody could find it easily. Um, so just made up a template for that, and the, my colleagues there are trying to get that through the system so it will be an approved form for the chart. Um, the other, every time I go, there's something new going on, and I this time I was really impressed with how much writing the nurses were doing. And so they're doing something new this time where – Every individual patient, they had to fill out a, a pharmacy requisition form for the cytoxin, the ondansetron, the IV tubing, the the catheter, the needles, the syringes. And they were writing that every day for about 20 or 25 patients. So I thought, well, we could template. Like, we only have 19 protocols. We could template. What do you need for CHOP? What do you need for... Um, AC plus T, what do you need for, you know, uh, ABVD? So we made up the requisition, but we pre-populated it with everything that they needed so they would just have to write the patient's name and maybe a couple quantity things and stamp it and give it to the patient to then go to the hospital pharmacy to pick up their drugs. So little things like that, it's not a big thing, but it's probably going to save them two hours every single day from doing all that handwriting. Um, and then the other thing is we give a lot of full FOX there, and we only have six infusion pumps, and we frequently need pumps for 10 patients. So they go to gravity, and they're checking their watch, and so advocated for more pumps. I don't know if we'll get it, but... Um, we also have, and this is mostly Dan Milner and the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Dan Milner now works for the American Society for Clinical Pathologists, and he's building pathology labs And I think, it's 22 or 23 African countries, and I think Butaro was his first success, um, where they trained technicians on how to prepare samples. Um, everything got sent to the Brigham, and then they installed equipment to be able to do telepathology. And they they actually did a concordance study where when they had a volunteer pathologist in country, the tech sent the slides to a pathologist at the Brigham and they both read it. And their concordance, I think, was 98%. Um, And we still use telepathology for difficult cases, but we now have two trained pathologists in Butaro and three technicians. Um, so, so in the clinical care arena in both countries, we have treated thousands of patients. We have both in and out patient chemo delivery systems. We have chemotherapy. We have pain medication. We have a mixing hood and personal protective equipment. We do weekly tumor boards. We have an oncology EMR in both countries. Um, we're really trying to work on, a, uh, on an environment of safety and quality. Um, In Rwanda, we actually send about 10 patients a month out of the country to Kenya for radiation therapy, and we're in the process of preparing for the the facility um, at the military hospital in Rwanda to open within the next two to three months. Um, And my colleague Scott Tryman, who is here, has been in Rwanda for the last three weeks helping with those planning initiatives. Um, I've already talked about some of the retrospective research that we have done. You know, lots of abstracts and posters um, and papers have been written. And these are some of our um, colleagues who have presented at uh, national and international meetings. Um, some of the challenges. So this is Kenia Rwandan on the side of the ambulance. Um, And I certainly cannot pronounce that, but I was told by one of my colleagues it's not ambulance, but it's really, you know, vehicle that takes you to the hospital. Um, So the language can be challenging. Um, Particularly, it's really hard to talk to most patients. Um, And when I was there last time, I needed a a translator to... um, you know, I was consenting a patient for chemotherapy. Um, the model of care for nursing is very different. Um, people don't have primary patients. There's like people that are scheduled to take care of the inpatients who are there day after the day, not necessarily for chemotherapy. There are nurses that are scheduled to mix and give the chemotherapy, other nurses who are scheduled to round with the doctor, other nurses who, who pass all the medicines. Um, Lack of resources can be very frustrating, particularly when we have stockouts. And there was a period last year where we were stocked out of adriamycin, which was incredibly painful because we use it for breast cancer patients and lymphoma patients. Um, So it was a really a hard time. And the culture is is different there. In any country, it's different, and you have to learn what it is. Um, There's also... I think a different concept of urgency and time, things happen. Like they say, this is Africa, TIA, this is Africa. It's, you know, it doesn't happen as quick as we might, as it might in our own um, culture and facilities. Patient volume is very big. um, And, People work really hard and long days. Um, I was there right after the holidays, so you know things were quiet around the holidays because people are, were away. So the beginning of January was um, quite heavy with patient volume, and then I think just the the late stage disease and the suffering that you see is is just really really hard. Um, you know, and I think coupled with that, the poverty and people's inability to get back and forth to the hospital. And fortunately, PIH, for certain um, levels of financial need, provide bus tickets and food packages for some of their patients. Um, and so this is, this is um, a patient who I met back in uh, 2013 who had Wilms tumor. And um, this is a picture of him seven years later. And this was part of a a study that one of our colleagues did on the cost of care. So for about $2,000, this kid was cured. He had surgery and chemotherapy. Um, And so this is him several years later. And if you look really closely, you'll notice he has the exact same t-shirt on. Um, But he was quite the fireball. Um, And then this is Tashimi, who was the young woman that you saw in the beginning, and surgery and 48 weeks of chemotherapy for less than $700, she's cured. So this is the reward. You know, we don't cure everybody, but we are able to cure some patients. Um, So just in summary, um, we've been able to build in-country oncology workforce with been able to deliver complex care within the context of the country and the resources that are available. We've been able to monitor and report outcomes for many different diseases so that we can improve our care. We've been able to share our experiences at national and international (coughs) forums. And I don't mean just me, but I mean our Haitian and Rwandan colleagues. Um, And we've been able to provide hope, palliate some symptoms, and save some lives. Um, and so, just in closing, it takes more than a village, and that's you know that that partnership concept is so important. it takes a long term commitment and it takes financial resources and I really feel like it's our responsibility, both socially, morally, ethically, to help low and middle income countries and if we don't who who will um, and and it's uh, a pretty compelling case when when you're there and so that 's all I have. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Lori. And we'll have time for questions. Before I um, open the uh, floor for questions, I want to let you know that the CMA code is outside and uh, this uh, lecture was recorded. So if you have friends or colleagues who want to watch it, please direct them to it. Um, I'll start with one question and then we'll open up for questions. Um, Lori, uh, as my other um, uh, role, I am uh, the medical director of Uh, The inpatient services and so we pay a lot of attention to safety and quality and with the growth of your program of the program in Rwanda um, how are you handling medical error?
1: So that's a hard question. Um, So one of the things that there is a desire to do there is chart audits Um, and a little over a year ago or it might have been more than a year ago. Um, along with the two oncology nurse educators, I did a chart audit. Um, and we found some omissions. Um, uh, so... <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on <laughs> And... and so I presented them to the team, you know, like just aggregate, no finger pointing. I, I think one of the things that you have to be really careful of in another culture is to understand sort of fear and punishment beliefs. And I think that um I think we still have a lot of work to do with our colleagues. And and we actually are right. This is one of the grants that I'm working on right now of quality improvement principles that we're not finger pointing. We're not blaming. We just want to understand what's happening so that we can make it better for the patients, that it's our responsibility to do that for our patients. And think about every patient as your mother or your sister or your daughter. Um, and, and so I think we still have a ways to go, but there is definitely interest among the co- my, our colleagues in Rwanda um, to take a more rigorous look at, at the care that's being provided. Um, and, and I hope that, I hope we get this grant, and I hope that we're able to do it in a way that is not threatening and really improves right. our that's
0: care. The way it should be. Yeah, exactly. So we'll open up questions, yeah, in the back. You, you mentioned a couple of logistical and technical issues that limit the treatments, the chemotherapies available for patients, but I was wondering about drug approvals. I imagine they have some
1: sort of government agency similar to the FDA. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure they do. I know that there is a process um of j- like even just customs and getting things into the country. I don't know what that process is, and I know that you know, since I've we've been involved with them, there have been new drugs that have been ordered added to the formulary, but I honestly don't know what that process is.
0: The drugs they tend to get are the drugs that we consider, you know, have been used in the for, 1980s. Like, you know, Unfortunately, that's yeah. still the case. They don't have the most monitored image or IMAD, um, so they don't have to go through a big process, as I imagine. Others, yes, Tom. Uh, anywhere in the world, delay of diagnosis in cancer is a serious problem that affects outcome. When I was in Butaro, I was struck by how many marks of traditional healers were visible on the patient, mm. the large extent to which traditional medicine was used by patients for months and months at a time before the patient came to the Ventura Center. Do you know has that been looked at anymore?
1: I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know anybody that has looked at it. I I do agree with you. There is a fair amount of traditional healing. Um, you know, there comes a point where in this little catch twenty two situation where. You would like to do more public awareness, but Butaro is the only hospital, public hospital, that provides free oncology care. So, so, in, and, and we can't take care of the whole country. Um, so we really need to help build capacity, or the country needs to build capacity in other hospitals and get drugs in and get radiation and get surgery before you want to do big public campaigns, because otherwise you're going you're going to cripple the system that you have. Um, and actually, so Lydia Pace, who is a doctor from the Brigham, she actually has an early detection breast cancer project that they did in Butaro, and it has to do with the ultra, ultrasound and coronatal biopsy program that they set up. So they did a um, they did an early detection project in the district where Butaro hospital is and now the ministry has taken that to two other districts really looking for you know sorting out the abnormal versus the normal breast lump and then referring those patients up to Butaro so you know, so I think that there's some effort. Um, I, I was talking to somebody at a conference last week as part of the biomedical venture in global health. It's drug companies that are together, and she they're working with the government, and they're doing some early detection in cervical cancer and breast cancer um, in a district south of Kigali. And But like I said, you're in that catch-22, and so the government really needs to get drugs in the country, and we need to build capacity before we start doing huge public awareness campaigns because I just don't think we have the capacity to manage all the patients that will come forward.